Good afternoon and welcome to the Sitka Nature Show. This is your host, Matt. I want to thank you for joining me here in the middle of January 2023. We are two weeks into the new year and about three and a half weeks past the winter solstice. Still very much in the dark time of the year, but our days are getting longer. The sun's setting a little bit later each day and the sun is dropping down on the horizon a little bit further north each day as well. Of course, when it's cloudy as it has been much of the time, we don't get a chance to observe that directly. Although there was a day or two here in the past couple of weeks where I was able to uh, see the sun dropping and notice just how far north it's already moved relative to the furthest south. Uh, we almost had a clear skies on the solstice, but I only was able to observe the sun uh, a couple of days before the solstice, so I didn't see its furthest south setting, but pretty close to it. And it's one of the things that I like to track this time of year. Uh, this time of year, especially with the new year, everything is new again for those of us who like to keep track of what they see each year. So it's a brand new year for birdless and plantless and everything else. So it's kind of uh, a good motivation to get out in times and weather when it might not otherwise be very compelling to get out. I've been trying to make sure I see the unusual birds that have stuck around. That includes a brambling still here in Sitka, sandhill crane still around, coot and three wood ducks, as well as a Townsend solitaire that's been uh, showing up from time to time. It seems to be a little bit scarce, but every once in a while has been seen. If you're seeing any unusual birds out there, I'd love to hear about them. Please feel free to send me an email, sitkanature at gmail.com, or get on Facebook and like the Sitka Nature page there. In this darkest time of year, I also like to look for reminders of the coming spring. One of the first ones that I notice is the praseola. It's a small green blade that grows high in the intertidal. starts showing up actually in December, and it continues to spread until it reaches its most full growth in April. And I was reminded of that a little bit because of the conversation I have this week. I was able to speak a couple of days ago with Lauren Bell. She's finishing up her PhD. It's been a couple of years since I last spoke to her for the show and thought it would be fun to check in and find out what she's learned doing her research out here in Sitka Sound. So we'll go ahead and join the conversation with her describing a little bit of the work that she's been doing and go on from there. It's really great to be back after a couple of years, Matt. Yeah, still in my PhD program, um, but nearing the end. I'm very excited. I can see the light at the end of the tunnel uh, in year six of my PhD. So yeah, it is at this stage, I have collected all of my data. I spent a couple of years diving um, and looking at seaweeds here in Sika Sound and did a bunch of lab work associated with that. And now I am just looking at all the data and writing it all up which is actually really a satisfying part of the journey because it's kind of like seeing it all come together, putting it in context, looking at the narrative arc of the science, which is so satisfying to me. So yeah, I have two, two of my chapters have been published at this point, which is really exciting to kind of have that, those pieces complete. And then I'm working on my final, final chapter. And then of course, there's all the other side projects that went along the way that hopefully will be written up someday. But in order for me to get out the door, yeah, once I get this one done, I'll be <laughs> nice and wrapped up. <laughs> so is there a big like umbrella question that you're you're answering? Or were these kind of loosely related because of the ecology that you're studying? Yeah, um, yeah. So they had to be related for my committee to be okay. <laughs> Okay with them being all under one dissertation. So, um, so what I was looking at was high latitude seaweeds. So we consider up here in Sika Sound, we're sitting at high latitudes. Um, the seaweeds that we find here, how they 
um, grow throughout the seasons and then how that growth and their physiology might change in the future with ocean warming and ocean acidification. So um, kind of a neat uh, a neat story to look into because it involved, like I said, looking kind of at their current dynamics and how, how they fluctuate throughout seasons for um, big canopy-forming kelps and also for coral and algae, the calcium carbonate-containing uh, pink encrusting algae that you see out on the rocks, uh, and then bringing them into the laboratory and bubbling carbon dioxide into the waters, heating up the waters and saying, how do they respond? How does their growth change? How does their nutritional quality change? And in some ways, how does their um, their chemical defenses, so how palatable they are to consumers, is that affected as well? So, so how many years were you, was it like two, three, four years that you were actually measuring for this work? Yeah, yeah. Um, we dove, I started diving for this project in 2016, 2017, and did that all the way through 2021. Yeah, so several years. And yep. I mean, because part of what comes to mind, especially as you're thinking into the future, sort of trying to prognosticate into the future, uh, is, I mean, the word that comes to mind is resilience, right? Mm-hmm. So if you're in a, in a situation where everything is in this really narrow window and you're highly mm-hmm. adapted to a super narrow window, then anything outside of that window is probably going to be a real problem for sure, you. Sure, sure. As opposed to if you are in an environment that is subject to high degree of variability, if mm-hmm. you're surviving there at all, then you probably are pretty resilient to shifts. Totally. And so I don't have a real sense of, I know that there can be, you know, we had the blob, which I guess would have been like the year before that you were doing this. Yeah. Kind of the one in the in the North Pacific and Gulf of Alaska that got talked about a lot. And I'm I'm assuming, and there's these decadal oscillations mm-hmm. and then year-to-year weather variability, but I don't really have a sense of how much that variability is impacting in terms of like the temperature and salinity and, and carbon dioxide in the water of, of at the depths that you're working yeah. at and looking at that. Well, you're to- you hit it spot on, the variability piece. I mean, that's part of the reason that the lab I'm working with was interested in starting to do work up here is because here at high latitudes, we get big seasonal fluctuations. Mm -hmm. So yes, you also have the overlay of um, decadal events that maybe push those maximum and minimum temperatures up or down. Um, But just on a seasonal scale, we get huge swings in, well, one in light. We we all know that. (laughs) Sitting here in January, we know we have shorter days now. Uh, Big swings in temperature. And and then, like you said, carbonate the the um, carbonate chemistry of the water is changing just naturally from winter to summer because of the production that occurs in the water column. So the big phytoplankton blooms that happen in the spring, um, they actually, as they are pulling carbon dioxide out of the water and producing oxygen for us to breathe, that drives the pH up. So it's pulling out carbon dioxide from the water in the winter time. When so that so the pH stays high through the summer, and then in the winter time when all that production goes back down again, then you get more acidic conditions. You get more carbon dioxide in the water, and remember the oceans are uptaking carbon dioxide out of our atmosphere, so they're pulling in that carbon dioxide. There's no productivity to use that up again, so pH drops. So we get these big seasonal swings, and it's you know we've had sensors out in these kelp forests for since 2015, looking at pH, looking at temperature, looking at those um, that seasonal cycle. And one of the cool things, the other cool things that we didn't expect is you get that big seasonal cycle. And then in the springtime, when you're getting huge phytoplankton blooms in the water column, you are also getting a daily, a diel 
photosynthesis respiration signal that causes the pH to change up to 60% of the annual amount oh, that wow. it's changing. Just in a day. Just in a day. Wow. So they're subject to enormous variability. Yeah. Um, so, you know, then the question is, well, does that set them up more for success <laughs> in a future, uh, you know, conditions of ocean acidification or, yeah, or is it they're not going to be as resilient to even further drop if yeah. um, in pH, but yeah. Well, what's the, so I'm kind of curious, you, know, you said 60% of the annual variation, but what kind of variation are we talking about? Like it's not going from uh, sort of uh, what, uh, baking soda water or bleach or something to, to uh, vinegar. In yeah, terms right. Of, you know, when we think acid and base. <laughs> totally, but, totally. But like, you can still swim in the ocean. Yeah, You're not yeah. going to dissolve. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, so yeah, it, you know, pH, it's on a, it, it's on a log scale. Mm -hmm. So when we're talking about it in, in the pH scale units that we're talking about, it goes from about 8.4 pH down to 7.7 currently in so, the winter time. Like so it's not less than a factor of 10. Correct. But yeah, it's not, it's not a huge, huge change, but it is a huge change to organisms. Right. That is within the, I mean, that compared to any other environment on the planet, um, if you go, you know, into kelp forests um, in more temperate climates, they are not seeing those big seasonal swings. So for a marine organism, it it's impactful. Yeah. 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 And so it, that was one of the things I've been curious about, because there's a little uh, sensor that the sea uh, tour lab has that yep. is online. And so I've looked at that all the time and it's like, it's mostly 8.1. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it just seems to be there. Like there's tiny, like sometimes it's eight, maybe even I've seen it as low as 7.9, yep. and but mostly it's 8.1. And so I'm like, well, how much of a swing are we really talking here? Yeah. And, yeah. Um, and so it is interesting. I've, I'll, you know, another question I've been curious about, not so relevant to Sitka Sound and, and so presumably not something you've looked at specifically, mm -hmm. but where you have places like, um, Prince of Wales and Dahl Island, where there's a lot of limestone. Mm -hmm. And I was kind of curious, is that is that sufficient to buffer like like the near coastal water there? And yeah. would that make a difference, you know, for, for the kelps? Maybe research questions for the future, perhaps. Totally, but, totally. Uh, well, and the carbonate system, <laughs> it's intimidating. I'm an ecologist, and I was very intimidated starting a PhD looking at ocean acidification, because it's not as straightforward as just pH. pH is one of the ways we can talk about it. Mm -hmm. But we're also talking about total alkalinity, which is a measure of the buffering capacity of the water, which can be affected by freshwater runoff. And um, yeah, I mean, there's like, there's all <laughs> the, the PCO2, the total carbon dioxide, um, the dissolved inorganic carbon, you know, there's all these different metrics that all have potential physiological effects. So it's not an easy system right. <laughs> to think about. And it's different, you know, here on the outer coast, where we don't get glacial runoff and the big terrestrial um, signal. Um, so, yeah, it's it's very location-specific. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Well, yeah. uh, lots of lots of uh, opportunities for future research, yes, I guess. Yes, absolutely. But, uh, so I did have a chance. I spoke with Scotty Gabara from uh -huh. who, and, and actually, I think before, Julie, uh, whose last name is Julie now, Shram. Right. Mm -hmm. I think she was just getting started on that same sort of bigger project where they're looking at some of these things with glacial, in particular watersheds with glacial runoff and not. Yes. And one of the things that Scotty was talking about was the was these you know high water freshwater events and stuff. And so you're studying kelp forests, so a little deeper water. Well, mm -hmm. and they're actually looking mostly intertidal, and I think maybe just barely subtidal. Yeah. yeah. So stuff that is exposed to the air, yep. uh, certainly, and and certainly within, especially near near outflows, probably freshwater lenses yeah, where it's yeah. significantly fresher. Uh, do you are are you seeing any 
sort of is is it deep enough that you're not really having a big impact from from freshwater specifically mixing in? Yeah, or? correct. Yeah, if we look at our sensors, so we have we have sensors down at the seafloor in in giant kelp forests, which sit at about thirty feet, um, and there the salinity signal is pretty stable throughout the throughout the year. Now, one of the kelps that I am interested in looking at is Macrocystis, the giant kelp, and that of course attaches to the bottom down there, but extends all the way up to the surface. So the surface fronds of of that kelp might be subject to um, lower salinities at certain times of the year um, and very different temperature and and carbonate chemistry. Um, so down at the seafloor, the the benthic kelps, the subcanopy kelps, those ones are a much more stable environment. Mm, yeah, yeah, and so that's less of an issue for them, presumably. Sure. Yep. Except in as much maybe secondary effects from whatever's happening in the water column yep. and. And filtering down to them. Yes. So yeah, I, you know, you mentioned that the the, the uh, macrocystis being there at the surface. I imagine you know sometimes the surface gets really, especially if it's calm totally. and it's sunny, and in the summertime, you know, the the beach over by Shoals Point, kind of that looks out towards Lazaria. I've measured the surface temperature of that sand to be 130 degrees yeah. on the sand. <laughs> you know, of course, the water's going to be cooler than that. But yep. I was like, yeah, that's an impressive amount of warming. Yeah. And so I don't know. Like I imagine with those big brown blades right at the surface that they probably can absorb a lot of you know make it gets warm i yeah, would guess gets I don't, does warm, that yeah. is that do they like that or is that something that well you so if you've gone out in the if you've watched kind of kelp and its condition throughout the year you might notice that once you get into the late summer kelp starts looking pretty ratty yeah. out there and if you've, you've noticed that the like, blades start to kind of look a little um not as as <laughs> as happy and um and they start to kind of fall apart and there's a couple reasons for that, I think. I think one is temperature. I think that you're starting to get higher temperatures. And although kelp, you know, you find giant kelp down in Baja, California. So it, it is the same species. But so, it, you know, at that end of, end of its range, it can handle pretty high temperatures. But then again, we know that there's population-specific thermal tolerances. So um, it could be starting to push that, you know, in the in the late summer. The other piece of it that is going on is once you get those really warm waters in the late summer, they're also super nutrient poor. Um, by that point, all of the production that's been happening all summer has used up all the rich nutrients in the water column. And so it's actually so low that if you look at the nitrogen in the tissue of the giant kelp, by that point, it has been completely depleted. And it there, you know, there are levels that other researchers have looked at to say, you know, this is the minimum amount of nitrogen a giant kelp needs to sustain growth. And we found that by the end of the summer, they are way below that. They've used up all of their reserves, so they are not really able to put on any new growth or probably do much tissue maintenance. Yeah. So, you know, any any epiphytes that are starting to break them down, um, other things like that, they probably just aren't, they don't have the ability to handle that anymore. So they're starting to look pretty, pretty ratty. But... They are still there. There is still some growth that's happening at the lower levels. Um, so you know, I think there's probably more nitrogen supply lower down, and um, and they're still able to kind of sustain because they are perennials. Um, so once they make it through that, maybe they shed some of those old fronds as they senesce, um, and then they'll start growing again in the next growing cycle. Well, that's what I was wondering because the macrocystis is a perennial. Do they can they regrow fronds? From up on the stipe, I guess, is mm. that, uh, or do they have to grow from below again and grow up? Like, because, yeah, as you're saying, that, that, that a lot of times they are kind of beat up, the grazers have hit them, yep. and then they're just being all, yeah, not very happy looking. Yeah. <laughs> 
Um, but and so then I wondered, is like, well, okay, when things get nicer again for them, are they regrowing from low or are they able to re re sprout up up high? Yeah, they're growing. They're growing from. They're hold fast. So down at the at the seafloor. Yeah. So they're re- sending up a sending new sending up a new one. Shoot. Yep. Okay. Um. And yeah. So the growing end. It's neat. Uh. The the growing end of the seaweed where the most mer- the meristem is is at this the tip. The growing tip. It's called a scimitar blade. Um. If you've ever found it um at the very end of a frond um it's really cool looking it's uh you can see where all the division is happening uh in the blades and the pneumatocysts as they grow out but if they lose that then it's pretty hard for them to maintain any growth in that frond they might you know at each node be able to elongate their blades but they're not going to continue to elongate the entire frond or Mm. stipe so yeah they'll shoot up new ones from the so when they get if something were a boat, say, yep. or something, or cuts them. S- s- sharp weather or whatever, yeah, um, breaks them. Then they're starting they're over gonna, again. Yep, from from the hold, not from the not hold completely, fast. but but Correct. so like bull kelp then would grow a completely new hold fast and start from scratch every year. Yes, so to speak. Yes, yep. Okay, yeah. So that's interesting. I mean, sometimes in the fall, there's massive piles of of macrocystis that wash up, you mm-hmm. know, on the beaches, and and you see those big hold. Like some of them are really big hold. Oh fast. yeah. I don't it's know a whole why. ecosystem yeah. within itself. Yeah, you can yeah. sometimes. I I've not usually been so ambitious so far, but uh, you know, a couple of people I know have have started to pull those apart, and there's a mm-hmm. lot of little critters that are you know not going to make it because they didn't get to stay where they thought they'd get to stay, yep. and they hold fast down on the bottom. But uh, but you can find them and see them uh, without mm-hmm. having to, I guess, dive down <laughs> and dig through them, hold yep. fast with your with your blade. But they're really tough. I mean, they're, oh they're, yeah, they're. Um, it looks like they mostly. Like they they break off the rock instead of the holdfast itself breaking. It's like the attachment seems to break more yeah. often when well, I see those. And I mean that is their key to being able to, you know, hold on for dear life in, yeah. in pretty you know wave impacted environments. And you know there is a limit to that, which is why you don't typically see macrocystis, the giant kelp, in really uh, heavy high current areas. Um, so like in in some of the uh, passages, Olga Neva, you'll really only find. Uh, Nereocystis, because if you think about hydrodynamically, when there's a big current ripping through there, that can lay out um, a lot more horizontal and be able to go with the flow, (laughs) you'll say, versus giant kelp has so much biomass in the water column that it just, once you really put a lot of force on it, it eventually is going to rip off that hold fast. Well, I guess it has all of those blades. And so having so many blades would make for a lot of drag relative to you know, the uh, narrow cystis, the bull kelp there, where you just have the bulb at the end. and Otherwise, it's just this long, skinny. Exactly. And then there's the, the blades that go off of that, that uh, bulb. But those are relatively small and right at the and surface. And they're all on the same plane. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. yeah. So the, the drag there would seem like it would be much, much less. Yep. Uh, so, yeah, it is kind of interesting. And then, as I understand it, and I can't remember if I was talking to you or other people or both, that that these, these kelp forests in places, like... Um, like there's a whole dynamics thing happening. You can have a kelp forest in a place for a while and mm-hmm. then it'll blow out for whatever yes. reason, whether that's a, I mean, it's probably a combination of factors often, I guess, or just maybe a really big storm or something. Yep. And then there won't be that. It's not like it comes right back necessarily. But over time, there's a, a process of and I don't know if it's like as as uh, 
successional processes in the forest are fairly well studied and and seem to be relatively consistent for a given area. This is the sort of thing that happens. You cut down all the trees, then here's how it'll come back. Right. Um, but I don't know if that's what's going on in in mm-hmm. the ocean or not. Like, mm-hmm. is it is there a consistent pattern, or is it kind of like, well, sometimes it goes this way, sometimes another way. Sometimes it goes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah it's a uh, it's a little all over the map. Um, yeah, and, and kelp forests are are interesting because yeah, there's these interesting threshold pieces that are different in different locations where if there's enough disturbance, you're right, it can undergo what we call a phase shift and actually can move from a lush giant kelp forest to a barren is what we talk about, an urchin barren if they're the primary consumer. And I have seen that. A couple of the kelp forests that we started, our lab started our work in in 2015 that were beautiful. I mean, these, I just still have visions in my mind of how lush, how much kelp there were in these forests. And and because of the biomass in the water and that extra habitat, how much fish were in them and, and really the promoted biodiversity was was gorgeous. And something switched in the last seven years, and two of the sites that used to be really beautiful kelp forests are now completely bare of of kelp. Um, we have a couple theories about why that is. The two sites that uh, that we saw that happen to were both south of of Sitka, and I think that it is has to do with the predation dynamics that there was a disruption in the in the predators the top predators and it might be a combination of um of hunting pressure for sea otters right because sea otters are if you've heard about the trophic cascade sea otters are the primary predators of the herbivores that then eat the kelp so if you take away sea otters those herbivores might be able to proliferate the other piece of it is that we had sea star wasting come right through. that was right before you started yes, right so exactly. if there's a, a year delay in that cascade i suppose that would be yep I think that that's the big effect. Those big Pycnopodia, the big sunflower sea stars, are huge predators in in the subtitle. And so we think that when they disappeared, and they did, they just were off the map, and they still are just barely coming back (laughs) out there, um, that that, again, took predation pressure off of the urchins, off the abalone. And and you talk to people, they've seen more abalone in the last couple of years, right? Um, So that's what we saw at those sites was all of a sudden urchins were coming out. <laughs> Whereas before they were all down in the cracks, you know, and they now they came out and um, and started to eat. And man, during one of the years that I was doing monthly growth sampling on certain kelp. So I went out and I put little number tags so I could go back and find the same kelp year after year. And you or sorry, month after month. And you could go out and you could see like the grazers just moving in. <laughs> and, and it's cool. I mean, people have asked, um, Asked me before how grazers go after a giant kelp. Um, do they just hit the hold fast? And you find grazers. I mean, we've done vertical surveys. There are urchins and uh, and turban snails way up in yeah. in the canopy. Right? They climb, 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 and they'll they'll eat all along because they also don't want to get eaten. Um, but they would, yeah, they would take out entire. Macrocystis, and it would all you know, you'd go back, and there'd just be one little frond <laughs> with covered in urchins. I, I have know. some pretty dramatic photos, so yeah, they systematically took down um, the succession that I've seen is a pretty predictable succession of uh, species of seaweeds that get taken out by the grazers in turn. So it seemed oh, like they the preferred ones go first, correct? And then... Maybe the less chemically defended ones go, right. and then that it tastes the best. So um, what I saw was giant kelp was taken out, 
early, um, this big understory species that's a type of sugar kelp, uh, now called Hetophyllum nigropes, would be taken out next, which we know is a really nutritionally dense one. Um, and then the agarum, agar- agaraceae species that are we know are more chemically defended, and and then red algae species kind of after that. So kind of wild how they work their way down to, okay, I guess I'll eat this next one. I don't like it as much, but <laughs> getting hungrier and hungrier. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It is interesting. And you did some studies on, on some of the, if I'm remembering, and I'm having this flashback to uh, like kelp chips or something that you were making, I mean, just sampling uh, <laughs> nutritional stuff and uh-huh. then also sort of testing with, with critters in the lab, uh, what they like to eat. Yes. Yeah. We've done some, uh, some preference of food, um, yeah, we, we did that with abalone, with pinto abalone. Um, I just helped with, with that study that some others in my lab ran. Um, but they were growing pinto abalone in future uh, ocean acidification okay. conditions yeah. and feeding them a different, different algal diets to see if diet could help them uh, weather the metabolic stress of being in really acidic, corrosive conditions. Um, and actually, really fascinating if if you feed a pinto abalone just giant kelp, which is the most it's the most productive, most dominant seaweed we have out here in these in these giant kelp forests, if they just get that, and then you stick them in low pH water that we expect at twenty one hundred in the winter, they lose mass. They cannot mm. maintain positive growth in that condition, and that is not good news for pinto abalone. But if you feed them a diverse diet, so not just giant kelp, but also hetophyllum, that sugar kelp and some other a red species, another kelp species, and then you stick them in those same acidification conditions, they can maintain positive growth. Hmm. It's still less than we see today, but at least they're still putting on new tissue. So really speaks to the importance of, of that diversity in kelp species and different nutritional profiles and and things like that. Yeah, who would have thought? Diverse diets. I mean, I feel like Actually, I hear about matters. that. Yeah. <laughs> well, what your mom always told you. <laughs> yeah, vegetables. Come on. Right. Uh, yeah, it's interesting. So, as you, as the, I mean, I can only imagine that the giant kelp is a pretty good shade producer. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. And so, as those disappear, then you know, I don't know, because the, the attenuation of light through the water column is pretty significant, especially when it's full of plankton. Yes. So, I guess there's a big seasonal difference there. And, but I am kind of interested, I guess. If you notice, and maybe it just was happening so fast that there wasn't time for, you know, more light-loving species to come in as the canopy disappeared, essentially. And so you get more of those benthic species mm-hmm. that, that needed the light that they weren't getting. Um, of course, then they just get eaten also down sure. the line. But uh, <laughs> w- were there patterns like that, or was it all happening so fast that there wasn't really time for establishment of... Or I guess it, not only establishment, but I guess it could be... Um, um, there's a word for it, but it's not coming to mind now. When, when things, uh, when they have the chance, like when a tree uh, that's been in the understory has a chance, uh, a tree falls down and a light opens up, like they, they grow oh, faster yeah. all yeah, of a sudden, Yeah, they're opportunistic, right? yeah. Yeah, and so maybe there's a chance where they're like hanging on out there, but now they have this chance to like grow fast and, and big. Totally. Um, yes, we were able to capture that just a little bit in that monthly sampling that we did. Cause so that monthly sampling of growth... Um, for uh, for the kelp community, I I was looking at over the course of the giant kelp disappearing at one of the sites. So it was really interesting to kind of watch those dynamics. Um, and because we were going every month, I think I was able to capture some of that short-term uh, change. And what I saw was as that 
like you said, that that shade-producing giant kelp canopy disappeared, we did see pr- relative production of the understory kelp species start to, to come up. And because the way that we measured for, for understory species, they grow from a meristem, right? Uh, so they're growing tissue is right where their stipe um, or their stem hits their blade. Um, so you can do something really cool. I think we talked about this last time where you can punch a hole in the blade and then go back every month and measure how far it extends. And the cool thing about that is you're getting linear growth rate, um, but you're also, if you measure the total length of the blade, you can get grazing rate at the same time. So you can kind of um, you can kind of tease apart you know, its, its production versus the grazing that's happening on it. And so what we could see was <laughs> the production would kind of kick up because there's more light hitting them, we assume. Um, but then the grazing would also <laughs> start to increase because now the grazers are moving on from the mm. giant kelp they're mowing down to these other species. So eventually that caught up with the with the other species. But it was neat to see that little blip in. Yeah. Um, they were increasing. And and just like you said, you know, we have had light, light sensors under these giant kelp canopies. And exactly like you said, um, they, provide, they provide so much shade that in these big, dense kelp forests, we actually, even though in the summertime you'd expect there's more light available, in the summer you actually can have less light hitting the seafloor than you do in the wintertime. So some of those understory species see higher light in February than they do in June or July um, because the waters are clear, the giant kelp canopy hasn't really come back in a big way yet, um, and and you know later in the year they they're just kind of blocked from light right. from everything. So um, you know that that has been a reason we've seen some of the understory species actually do show their highest growth rates at this time of year, January, mm. February, March. You get huge growth in some of those understory species that I think are just trying to capitalize on. That's their time of year; they get light and there's high nutrients. Well, right. Um, so so I was wondering. You, you were mentioning how depleted the nutrients are at the end of summer. Mm-hmm. I guess probably part of it is fall storms coming in and stirring up the yep. water, more increased runoff. The the you know the the leaves and the needles and exactly. the dead fish and all of the stuff that's flushing out exactly. and then mixing is is. But do you have a sense of how quickly the nutrients are coming back? Like when's when's the peak? I mean, I guess I don't know. Like, like there's presumably a, it doesn't just instantly step up, but but there would be a, a ramp up to to the peak and then and then stuff starting to take advantage of it, yep. as, especially as lights increasing. So is it pretty much increasing? through the fall and and winter and then and then it's in the spring that it starts to drop off again with some of those first blooms or yep, yep okay. exactly yeah and yeah we've we've looked at that monthly and just like you said usually September October is what we've seen huge spike in nutrients and um, I have you know while I was measuring nutrients in the water column out off the airport I also went and was looking at it in Indian River yeah and I mean, it corresponds right when the salmon are all decomposing. So I think that's a big signal wow. where we are, yeah. um, especially for ammonium, um, that like whoosh, big spike. And, and seaweeds love ammonium because it's a much more available ni- uh, uh, nitrogen source than, than nitrate. Um, so I think that that kicks it off. And then you just see out in the ocean that nutrients stay high all the way through the winter and, and come down again in the spring when you get the big phytoplankton productivity in in, uh, April. But we saw it's about a month lag 
in mm. the tissues of, of seaweeds. So it takes so about take- a month for them to start integrating. And then by the time they drop off again in the summer, it takes about a month before they're totally oh. depleted. Yeah, it would be interesting. I don't know if that's one of those um, like stable isotope sorts of things because usually that's marine versus terrestrial. So, mm-hmm. I mean, it would be interesting to, to see, well, how much of the salmon is going back into the seaweed yes. or whatever. You know, I don't know if that's even feasible yeah, with modern chemistry, label, current chemistry. But, label yeah. the nitrogen sources. Yeah. Oh, I would love to do that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm so fascinated by, yeah, how much, how much that ammonium is really fueling some of the kelp that's near some of those. Yeah. Yeah, it'd be interesting. I don't have any idea like how far it like depends on the weather, I'm sure, and the and the tides uh, mm-hmm. to a certain extent. How far like a given stream, the outflow of that is mixing, and, mm-hmm. and so presumably the outflow of Indian River wouldn't have so much of an effect up at Neva Strait or something yep. like that. But out here off off Eastern Channel, you know, would be bigger. But I don't know. You yep. know, that'd be be interesting. Well, uh, and it <laughs> as great as it is, it also. Um, became very clear to me that that was a little bit of a limitation on my ability to run experiments mm. um, and control for for nutrient availability because I rented space in the science center to run my global change experiments and I my my goal was to simulate future ocean warming and acidification in winter and summer conditions so under winter conditions of high nutrients low light summer conditions of low nutrients high light but my problem was I ran my experiment in summer in August and September at the Science Center, which pulls its seawater from 60 feet right out in front of the hatchery. And so as I'm running this experiment in my low nutrient <laughs> conditions, I was like, man, these nutrients are a lot higher than I meant. Oh, shoot. There's all these decomposing salmon that are dumping out extra nitrogen that um, it wasn't you know, astronomical, but it did certainly feed out and then get uptake by the their yeah. seawater system and then push through my system. So I did have to account for that when I was <laughs> doing yeah. my, my interpretation. Complication. You go into the lab so that you don't have to deal with I know. Those How do you? <laughs> yeah. It turns out you can't control all variables as much as you want to. I guess you'd have to make your own seawater or yes, something. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, that sounds, yeah. It's, it's interesting how the, these things sort of interconnect and and go that way. And yeah, the, the growth, the species that I see that I notice growing first. And so for me, because of the timing of it is, it, it's sort of like, if I were to ask a, a you know, a, a question like, what's the first sign of spring? Mm. For me, it's December and it's the little green blades, the praseola, which mm-hmm. start to come out on the rocks. They reach their peak kind of in April and then they just, I'm sure that they're there at some level, but you don't see them anymore mm-hmm. in the summer. They just that go are away. high intertidal. Yeah, very high. Mm-hmm. So there's this green green uh, band, and uh, they make a little carpet. They're they're kind of mm-hmm. cool looking, uh, and so I start noticing those in December. I haven't I haven't actually tried. I don't often go to the beach in, uh, you know, late November or anything that, uh, you know, it's not when I'm going down there for low tides. Mm-hmm. Or, and and if I am, the tides are at night, so I'm not really looking in the high intertidal. Yeah. So I haven't really tried to say, okay, when do I first notice these things. But it is interesting that they're growing. Of course, they're probably less dependent on the nutrients in the water and stuff mm-hmm, because they're mm-hmm. so high. They're just in that in that. Well, I mean, they'll get covered in the highest highest tides, sure. but yeah. most of the time they're out of water. But it does make me me wonder. And then I remember seeing like in often I think it's March where you get uh, these blades washing up and they're on you know smaller than fist size rocks <laughs> that <laughs> they made the mistake of anchoring to, right. and they just they've grown enough that now now the drag is sufficient that they just get carried in. Yeah. And you go out to like the the tide flats at Totem Park, and and you'll just see these up 
much higher than they want to be on the on the intertidal mm-hmm. at at low tide, or not even that low of a tide really. And so I guess it's that that to me is also part of what oh since before the plants have usually started doing stuff on land, mm-hmm. but there's clearly growth happening here because yeah. that thing didn't just grow in the intertidal. That's not where it likes to be. Yeah. So it grew enough below and then and then got carried up. So those are some of the things that that. Um, you know, at least as a non-diver, you know, a non-snorkeler, I, I'm not as attuned to the the comings and goings of of growth in in the subtidal zones. But you get these signs of them even in places where us land breathers can walk totally, a little more easy. Totally, totally, yeah. And it's cool to see what species can capitalize on on those conditions, even when light is low. Um, that we we were looking a little bit at. Um, uh, in a collaboration with the tribe, I was uh, over there at Research Protection Department for the last couple of months, collaborating with them, and and we were looking at some of our um, of our uh, similar carbonate chemistry data and environmental data, and looking at you know really interesting signals that we were seeing uh, in our data stream from early in the in in the year, like like January, February, and we were seeing these changes in pH that seemed to suggest that there were big blooms happening like way earlier than you expect. But what we found when we looked at the light data was, oh, that year there was a really beautiful period of three weeks that sun sun was out. It was so nice. Um, we got way more sun than we're used to at that time of year. And it just kicked off a huge early season bloom. So you realize, you know, what's what's usually constraining that is is the weather patterns. But, you know, all of these organisms are poised to to take advantage of whatever they can get. Um, and so, you know, maybe light is limiting to this species, but, you know, if you end up with a nice stretch of weather, holy cow, then you can just get a massive bloom. And then it right away was respired because <laughs> everything else in the food chain then eat, ate that and, you know, went to town on it. So just interesting to, to think about the phenology and how that, that timing is so dependent on, you know, our typical weather patterns. But as soon as you start shifting it, it's probably going to change. <laughs> so so when you say the bloom, was that the phytoplankton bloom? Yep. Yeah. It, so the seaweed, when they grow, they aren't growing fast enough to, to deplete. To deplete, yeah. Or, no, or they don't, they don't have way. as big of, a, of, of an impact. Yeah. Um, they will over time, but yeah. they, you know, the phytoplankton just can respond so quickly. Um, whereas, yeah, the kelp is a much more me- over the course of weeks. So you will see you know that's what that was the, the was a signal we were interested in was we just saw such a rapid spike versus typically you see the carbonate chemistry change gradually over the course of a couple of weeks which is really the you know the integrated production of water column and kelp and all that well so is is when this time of year i guess we'll say february Mar- and even march and yeah february march for sure uh if it's sunny and that's what's been a little novel here in Sitka recently is we've had the sunny weather mm-hmm. and it's not been cold. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. been, been near 40, which yeah. is feels like a gift in January around here. Uh, the outflow events, you know, those Arctic outflow events, but often very bright and sunny. Mm-hmm. And I guess certainly at 60 feet, I wouldn't imagine that they have been like, the, it doesn't matter that it's 20 at the surface sure. down there. It's the same. Yeah. Um, but I don't know if, if kind of in those, in the, in the column, in the water column there, the, I'm guessing that the phytoplankton, they don't care what the air temperature is so much. If there's sure. enough light coming, it's not changing, except at the very surface, it's not changing the water temperature enough to yeah. be an issue. Yep. So they can be blooming even if it's... Yeah, at least some species yeah. are able to do it at, at low temperatures. Yeah. Hmm. So the, each of them has their own physiological 
right. niche, right? And and some are like, I don't need it to be high temperature, but give me that light, and then they can take off. So, yeah, just it, I mean, it would be interesting to characterize was that bloom this specific set mm-hmm. of phytoplankton versus what you usually see. Yeah, um, in a spring bloom. Yeah, that is. It, uh, yeah, I'm kind of curious because I remember I'm talking to some of the folks that have been studying the plankton, and they're like, "Well, they're seasonal. You can just look at the phytoplankton in the water column, mm-hmm. but that's a lot of separate blooms happening, and mm-hmm. you know, different species happening uh, to to expand greatly and then and then decline greatly, and you know, all combined, you know, it ends up being this fairly continuous yeah. like ramp up and and down, but it's made up of many smaller you know, ups and downs of individual species. Yeah. And that's requires a little more work to track. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Totally. But yeah, it would be interesting to know, like, are they completely different species in the winter that are blooming Mm -hmm. uh, that are just there at low levels or maybe not even, because I know that some of them can go into these, I don't know if they're technically cysts or whatever, but Mm -hmm. in these dormant forms where they're in the sediment for a while and then they get stirred up and, and they can get started again. Cause that was, yeah, they were talking about that with the, um, some of the some of the species that um, are issues for toxicity, you know, oh, in, sure. in shellfish, that you can have a bank of the of these things in sediment that yeah. are just there for a long time, and then if something happens with currents or whatever, a storm, and it'll stir that up, and now it's in the water column, and so maybe there was none of this stuff for a while, but now it's back, sure, and, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it just is kind of coming and going like that. Uh, so it's interesting to think about, you know, the way that things are moving, and you know, you're talking about the changes in uh, kelp forest and and sort of the reduction it, and the so the red seaweeds are kind of the least palatable for the grazers. They generally? typically it depends on the species, um, but typically red species have more chemical defenses in them. They have higher phenolic content, is what yeah. we call. Um, and and you can you can notice that. I mean, it depends on the red species. You know, obviously there's dulse, um, certain red species that are really tasty to us, but a lot of the reds try them. A lot of them seem bitter to your mm. palate. Um, there's one, uh, that is my favorite Osmundia that tastes like pepper. Um, mm. and that, that's a type of chemical defenses. Um, so yeah. Like, like black pepper or like, like black pepper. Okay. Wow. Yeah. It's, it's pretty cool. I, guess I, have to, <laughs> I, I mean, I've seen that. I, well, uh-huh. I've never, I've never tried to eat yeah, it. Yeah. Try but, eating it. There's, right. there are really no seaweeds besides, uh, Besides, there's one that um, has some sulfuric right. compounds in it, but it's not going to kill you. Um, <laughs> I remember just, it probably tastes bad, but um, but all of them are edible. I think it was when Dolly Garza was here and did a talk on edible seaweeds, mm-hmm. and somebody's like, "Well, are there any you can't eat?" And she goes, "Well, you wouldn't want to eat the ones that you shouldn't eat, right? Um, pretty much, because it was like <laughs> the acid, the acid kelp yeah. one, Desmarestia, yeah. and then and then she wasn't sure about some of the coralline, but it's like." Why would you even? Yeah, like, yeah. like it's not that it would be poisonous. It's just like you're. It, yeah. it's, it's maybe not you something want the that's crunch good for with you it. To, I guess to be eating. <laughs> um, but other than that, you know, there's an awful lot of seaweeds that you could eat. Sure. They're not going to hurt you, but they don't taste very good. Yeah. Uh, and, the and then it's also by. right. <laughs> well, uh, cultural things. She said that the codium, the the dead men's fingers, mm-hmm. sometimes are called the branched one. Um, I think it was people from Hawaii maybe had come for a visit and they were super excited about that. That's oh, something that they ate and, and it was, and so for them that was like, that was good food. And for, that wasn't something that she was used to eating. If I'm remembering the story correctly, it was something, something along those lines anyway, that, that different people, uh, have different tastes mm-hmm. as, as we're probably familiar with and, and individuals, you know, like there are things to me, there's a plant out here, a Siberian miners letters that people are like, Oh, it's just kind of a plain, um, 
you know, it's like a leafy green and you can eat it and it doesn't have a lot of flavor, but you, yeah. it's no, no, and if it's in the sun, it's a little bitter. And every time I ate it, it just had this, it tasted like dirt to me. It's like, <laughs> what is, like, it's not dirty. I said, is that what people mean by bitter? Because, you know, you never know. Yeah, it's like, yeah. And then I got one. And I was like, no, no, that's definitely bitter yeah. uh, and still tastes like dirt. <laughs> and it, it took me a while, but I eventually pieced together. It's like beets have a kind of earthy flavor oh, to them. Sure. It's like concentrated beets yeah. uh, and not the sweeter parts of beets. It's just that earthy, earthy aspect to it. And um, for whatever reason, I can taste it. Not everybody can. Mm-hmm. So there seems to be like a genetic component. I guess cilantro oh, is yeah, another one. Like cilantro cilantro tastes mm-hmm. like soap. And so for me, it tastes very strongly of beet. I, I, I had a chance to uh, ha- share them with some folks that I was helping out with the tour. And, and, and the guy goes, oh, yeah, that definitely tastes just like concentrated beets. And I love beets. <laughs> this is great. And for me, I'm like, it tastes like moldy dirt yeah, to me. Yeah. But OK, you know. Well, it, you know, it's an interesting point, too, because there's this big push in, for seaweed mariculture. And mm-hmm. one of the big problems is marketing it. And, and part of it is our cultural aversion or just like unfamiliarity with um, with thinking about eating seaweeds on a regular basis. And it is so cultural, right? I mean, there are other cultures in Asia, for example, they eat way more seaweed than we do. Um, so, you know, in wanting to promote <laughs> seaweed mariculture and make it a successful industry, you know, how do we start shifting our our minds a little bit about about how uh, how we can integrate it into our food? I was just reading a, a book by Bren Smith, who's the founder of Green Wave, who, who wrote Eat Like a Fish, and his his journey into going from working in an industrial fishing industry to being a seaweed farmer. And he talks about how he was looking at branding his seaweed and he followed the model of kale that, mm. you know, 10, 20 years ago, kale wasn't even used very frequently. But they, it just was marketed in such a way that it became this high-end foodie foodie thing <laughs> that you could eat kale and that was like the the new thing and now you know it's everywhere um so you know he's trying to push that for seaweeds yeah and yeah I'm, I'm very curious to see how successful that becomes in the coming years it is it's an interesting yeah way that people adapt and adopt different different foods i think there's a lot of food that that you know i'm sure that we take for granted that we're mm-hmm. just like well of course we eat that why wouldn't we and sure. people are like what, what? <laughs> you eat rotten milk <laughs> why would you eat rotten milk uh-huh. Uh, yogurt or whatever sure. you know fermented stuff is yeah. is always a little interesting but uh it is it is kind of kind of fun and it seems like see i mean seaweed i remember trying seaweed for the first time when i was a kid and the problem for me is i like i don't like really salty flavor mm-hmm. very much and so it's most of the seaweed i've, I've eaten has been super salty sure. um, but there's uh, some of the little um um pyropias that mm-hmm. used to be porphyras yep. uh, and i think some of them still are but most of them aren't um that grow um and there's different species of those yep. uh, and and different flavor profiles for those and some people are really fussy about which particular ones you know they're not those are really difficult to identify generally yep. speaking yep. Uh, but people recognize the ones that they want yes. and, you know who knows what the actual scientific name is on them these days with all the genetics works that people are doing but there's one that grows um, it's an early spring one it's pretty much gone by April it's mm-hmm. it's like going away and it's a high, high intertidal kind of similar to the praseola. Mm-hmm. You know, um, almost splash zone high, high mm-hmm. intertidal, but not quite. And uh, and it seems the I mostly just see on more 
inner stuff. Mm-hmm. And this one I've seen on more outer stuff. It's a little bigger. It's maybe an inch or something yeah. long, a couple inches at the longest. And it's it's stretchy. That's one of the ways that it's like you can pull on it. It's yes. a little bit elastic. But that one I like all right. It, it's not very salty, mm-hmm. maybe partly because it's getting rained on all the time. Oh, sure. And it's not constantly in the salt water. And I'll just eat that. You get snails with it. So if you just eat it straight, like yeah, you protein. can clean off the... <laughs> but yeah, calcium and protein, right? Yeah, so totally. The little litterinas are in there, uh-huh. the uh, little snails. But, but that one's one that I like all right. But I know that uh, like Florence Welsh has made a like wrote a little article for a website a mm-hmm. web blog about like all the different kind of seaweeds that she's harvested. Oh, yeah. and there's a whole yep. bunch of different the ways that she's used it and that kind of yeah. thing. Yeah, so. well, yeah, I mean, it it is kind of just a challenge to creativity of the, about how, the different ways you can prepare it. And, yeah, yep, yeah. I think she there was maybe it was uh, Alaria was one of the ones mm-hmm. that you dry and mm-hmm. then and then grind up as powder and you can oh, put cool. it in additives to things. But mm-hmm. I guess the way most people probably in in the U.S. get seaweed is um, sushi, I suppose, is, mm-hmm. is yep. I, I guess, where that, that shows up in yep. their California rolls or whatever they're eating. Yeah. I'm not much of a sushi fan either, so I don't know too much about it. <laughs> uh, but, yeah. yeah, it's fascinating, all, all, the, different, all the different things that, that are going on there. So, the, um, you know, you had mentioned, I can't remember if it was before we started talking or since we've been recording, but you're talking about some of the work with the coral analogy, which yeah. are... A little, they're challenging, I guess. I mean, some of them are pretty. Dis- I mean, they're all distinctive in the sense that they're they're uh, like chalky almost. Yeah. Like they they, um, I don't know what exactly it is that that they're they're doing. Somehow they're embedding. They're mostly red, mm-hmm. a pink color, yep. I guess. Uh, some of them are crusts and can. Yep. I don't know how much here, but apparently it can form really deep, yeah. like thick Big crusts. plates, yeah. Yeah. A lot of habitat. You see yeah. brittle oh, stars. So can, yeah. things, and they have out. gaps and holes oh, yeah. in them. Yep. Yeah. And they're so, like big hotels. <laughs> okay. Wow. So if you were to like take a take a, a rock saw through one, you'd, you'd find all totally. that. Totally. Wow. Interesting. And so they're presumably just active at the surface, I guess, because they need light. Mm-hmm. Um, but what, like, what's role are, do, do you have a, have you looked at the kind of the role that they're playing? It sounds yeah. like they're the, the um, option of last resort for things eating, but it's a little mysterious that, I mean, I guess I could imagine something grinding and get something because, you yes. know, it's a niche. But. So it's, it's a, I, I have learned uh, since I've studied them, um, they actually are a pretty significant food source. Okay. And yes, they are more last in the line after you eat all the fleshy, delicious uh, macroalgae, but... Um, but consumers eat them, and you'll find, especially in barrens, that urchin stomachs are full of of, uh, of coral and algae. Um, usually, they'll get at the articulated ones, so the ones that stand more upright, and um, they have uh, genicula and inner genicula, which are like our knees. There's flexible joints in them, so they can bend with the with the water movement um, versus the encrusting type of, of coral and algae. But yeah, ur- urchins and other grazers will eat them. And I've seen some work done that, that suggests they actually are pretty nutritionally dense, but I think that they're kind of hard to <laughs> digest, <laughs> to digest yeah. and everything. So so there's that. Um, and the yeah, the energy that goes into doing that. Um, is or even just like scraping. scraping them. Yeah, totally. I mean, like a limpet or something. Sure. But yeah. I mean, they're, I, I don't know that they actually scrape. The, the microalgae is more what I think of them eating. Yeah, but. yeah. Yeah, so they that they're a bigger food food source than I ever realized. But really, their big role in um, in our ecosystems here are that, like you said, they're reef building. Um, so calcium carb- carbonate containing, they have skeletal structures, and they are building out from the the rocky substrate, creating more habitat. So a lot of invertebrates live in their cracks and everything. Um, they are some of the primary reef builders in in more uh, tropical areas. So that's mm. you'll see them building out. Uh, reefs 
in on coral reefs that you have those calcium carbonate containing algae. Um, but the other really interesting role that they play is that there's been work that shows that they release chemical cues that actually signal invertebrate and macroalgal larvae to settle on reefs. So they might be like a really important cue to say, hey, this is a great place to come land. There's enough light here to support you. There's other algae that can grow here. And that's where the the invertebrates kind of flock to. So they've shown that with abalone in particular, that they will be induced to land in areas where there is coral and algae. So when uh, now with that knowledge, um, I've worked with other researchers like Taylor White, who's done um, abalone recruitment work and they always seed their their substrates that they put out with um, with coral and algae to try and help oh, help and, bring and they get more abalone to them. So so this is when they're coming out of planktonic stage into correct, and settling. settling. Yep. Yeah. So so yeah, I mean that's a pretty important role, and that's part of the you know the concern that these calcium carbonate containing macroalgae, the corallines, are, are way more vulnerable to ocean acidification, um, and they literally start to dissolve their skeletal structure starts to starts to decline so if that if they are negatively impacted in the future what's that going to do to our coastal reefs and yeah the reef building and the attraction of other invertebrates and stuff like that so well yeah it's interesting to think about what the advantage i mean i don't know it's not it's, it's not like they all planned it ahead of time right so yeah right. uh but the you know i'm thinking about well so these are sending signals but what's preventing that from being selected against right that that something and i guess i guess in the end though that it might be to the net benefit of these coral and algae for the grazers to come in because they don't really like the coral and algae that Correct. much and they get rid of the stuff that's above them in the water column and they go along and they take off those diatom films that cover them and and compete for light and they and corallines really exist at least up here you know we were talking about what happens when the giant kelp forest disappears corallines underneath there are existing in a very particular light environment and the other thing that i've noticed in the areas where we lose the giant kelp canopy is all the corallines bleach oh they go from brilliant magenta too like really light pink so it's too much too, too much, much light. light yeah and you know th- i think that there's a piece there of how quickly that change happens but it was over two years that the kelp canopy went away so you know theoretically they have some time to move around their photosynthetic pigments and and adjust to it but it really was not good to their <laughs> yeah. overall coloration and and you could tell that they they didn't do as well so so I'm sure, you know, not it's very teleological to say like they are masterminding bringing the kelp to them, but um but clearly they do benefit from that association, yeah. yeah. Well, so when they bleach like that, is it killing them or is it is it just simply that that they're losing you know, it's it's a pigmentation thing and it's maybe not optimal for them, but it's not actually like like in a bleached coral reef for example, sure. it's like well that that means they're dead yeah, uh, yeah. kind of thing. But I, I wasn't sure if that's what's going on with these. Or... Yeah, unclear. Yeah. Um, I, I would say that it, they've looked worse. <laughs> yeah. Um, but but I'm not sure. Yeah. It could be that. Yeah. And, and I certainly, yeah, the they look the same as the the corallines that I have collected and then accidentally let out, left out, you know, and they've dried up and then they they have died. That tissue has died, it yeah. looks like. Are you able to, have you done any looking at like growth? You talked about growth of kelps, but have you looked at growth of coralline? Is that very easy to? No, it is not easy, but it's a really fun uh, project. So they grow slowly, as you might imagine. um, And we wanted to get a sense of their growth rates in the field. And I read a a couple papers um, 
talking about a method where you can actually, if you can bring them into the lab, you can stain them with a um, a, uh, a bioactive um, fluorescent stain um, called calcine, and it will actually put down a fluorescent, bright fluorescent mark on their growing edge on their meristem. And so we brought the we I, you know collected these corallins, brought them into the lab, scraped them all off of their all the things that were growing on them, soaked them in seawater with this this stain for a couple hours, and then um, figured out how to affix them, you know, keeping them alive, keeping them intact, affix them to plates, and then outplanted them back on the reef and left them for a couple months. And then after that couple months, bring them back in the laboratory. Um, you can actually take them off and dry them out. So you, you do kill them, but you dry them and that preserves their, their tissue at that moment. And then if you look at it under a fluorescent scope, you can see how much new gro- growth grew mm. beyond that initial stain. So, and so you can involved. measure that. It's a little yeah. involved, but it's super fun. I mean, yeah. just it's fascinating that you can get that. So, so yeah, so we did look at that in winter and summer seasons just to get a sense of, uh-huh. of their growth rates. And uh, they're slow. Yeah. <laughs> they're really slow. Yeah. Yeah. But, I guess not quite as easy as punching a hole in the, in the kelp and revisiting. But, yep. Um, yep. Yeah. The, I, I mean, I've seen like, like, for example, uh, um, uh, it's, it's defuxia i can't remember the full genus name but they're a, a tuber a kind of a tuber mm-hmm. and they're uh and often uh, when i've seen them often most often i think there's uh crustal crust um cal- uh, coral analogy mm-hmm. that they're kind of it's unclear to me whether they sort of have been growing together i mm-hmm. suspect there's a little bit of that or how much the Algae has been overgrowing, mm-hmm. you, you know, and those sorts of things. Like it's, it's not always easy to tell whether something is is taking. I noticed that with lichens on trees and stuff. It's like, well, okay, it's the lichen, and sometimes it's clear, like the lichen is growing over the moss. Oh, sure, <laughs> like it's yeah. growing fast enough to like take over the moss. Yep. So I don't know in the in the coral and algae case, like, is this are they actually growing fast enough to to grow over things? Yeah, I mean, we're talking uh, a couple of millimeters a yeah. year, so, so they, not not very not fast, that fast, yeah. but you know, depends on the rate of the other things. Yeah, <laughs> what they're competing with. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're kind of at the end of our time here. Anything else you want to mention uh, before we wrap up? I don't think so. Um, yeah, really fun to to chat about all this. You know, the the only other piece that that's been really fascinating to me is you know part of the the thing that's been interesting to watch besides the um, increased interest in seaweed mariculture is there's a lot of interest right now in the carbon uh, drawdown potential of kelps. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of people who are like, hey, could we use kelp forests as a way of uh, sequestering carbon in our climate? Um, and that's been kind of, and there's big debates, you know, on all sides of it. Well, could you, do they really sequester it? You know, what's happening to that tissue? Um, but it's been an interesting piece of the work that I've now done, um, you know, with all of our growth, looking at growth and looking at carbon turnover in some of these kelps, we can actually calculate how much carbon they are putting away each year and surprise surprise it's it's far less than they see it at lower latitudes um but it, it's cool because you know in them trying to make these big global estimates they never had a view of what was happening at high latitudes mm. so the fact that we can like give them a number to say well it's actually less than you thought <laughs> is is good i mean it's it's yeah. you know it's helpful in those calculations but um but that's that's just a fascinating piece to me as as people think about seaweeds and, and their potential especially in in uh, mariculture in the future so. Yeah. Well, no end of questions and yep. <laughs> uh, and things to look at. Yeah, it's it's fun to fun to talk about this. I appreciate you coming in and spending some time and we'll look forward to, you know, further results and studies and and ongoing work in the future. It'd be fun to to check back in 
maybe not in two and a half years. Maybe sure. a little maybe sooner. Maybe a little sooner. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, yeah. Matt. It's been yeah, a great thanks, talking Lauren. to you. You've been listening to a conversation I recorded with Lauren Bell just a couple of days ago. I want to thank her for taking some time to visit with me. And thank you for joining me here on the Sitka Nature Show this week. As always, I'd love to hear what you're seeing out there. Please feel free to send me an email, sitkanature at gmail.com. Or you can get on Facebook and like the Sitka Nature page there. Until next time, this has been Matt on the Sitka Nature Show, KCAW Sitka.